Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. This is the second episode in a two-part series about sexual offending. So if you haven't listened to the first part yet, go back and check it out. In the previous show, we talked all about the psychology of sexual offending. Why do people commit sex crimes? As we discussed, it is complex. There are multiple potential motives, but whether those motivations actually lead to behavior depends on a complex interaction of the person and their environment. So now that we have some sense of the why question, let's talk about the treatment and prevention side of things. How do we stop sex crimes from happening? Today, we're going to explore some of the things that do work and some of the things that don't. Some of the topics we're going to talk about today include whether harsh legal penalties and sex offender registries are actually effective at deterring sex crimes. We're also going to explore which treatments are most effective at stopping convicted offenders from offending again, the role of comprehensive sex education in preventing and reducing sex crimes, as well as interventions that can work to prevent people who are at risk of sexual offending from actually engaging in those behaviors. For today's episode, I am joined once again by Dr. Michael Seto, a registered clinical and forensic psychologist and a research director with the Royal Ottawa Healthcare Group. He is also a professor in psychiatry at the University of Ottawa. Michael has published extensively on the subject of sexual offending, which includes important books on sexual offending against children and on internet sexual offending. I can't recommend his books highly enough if you want to get more insight into these important topics. This program will contain discussion of sexual crimes, but at a pretty general level. We're not going to get into graphic detail of specific crimes or anything like that. I just wanted to mention that up front so that you know what you're in for. This is going to be an important and fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit KinseyInstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting sex science. Okay, Michael, so we've talked about why people commit sex crimes. The question now is, 
what to do about it. How do we prevent or stop sexual violence? And there's a lot to be said here, but let's start with something that we know doesn't work very well. And that is making the punishments and penalties for sexual offenses harsher and harsher. I mean, intuitively, I see why people are drawn to this idea, right? The more severe you make the consequences for crime, in theory, the more that should deter people from engaging in criminal behavior. But we've tried that over and over, and sex crimes still happen. So why is it that punishment isn't enough when it comes to stopping sexual offending? I think one of the challenges for punishment, right, in particular in terms of the criminal justice system, is, you know, and I'm, I guess I shouldn't say I'm an old school behaviorist, but I'm definitely influenced by a behaviorist point of view. You know, for a punishment to be effective in changing behavior, it needs to be immediate, it needs to be consistent, and it needs to be proportionate. Unfortunately, criminal justice responses tend not to match those things. You know, one of the challenges for relying on criminal justice alone, and of course, I'm not suggesting we don't pursue justice for victims, but, but we certainly can't rely on it on its own, is it's not immediate. It takes a long time, even if somebody reports it to the police right away and everybody you know engages with that process. It's nonetheless literally months, if not years, until there is a trial and a verdict and then, you know, whatever happens after that. It's not consistent. We know that sexual crimes are among the most underreported crimes of all, where, you know, a lot of victims don't come forward either for fear of not being believed or for fear of having to confront the perpetrator or having to testify. And we've seen, you know, again and again, really harrowing accounts of what that experience can be like for victims, right? It's, it's not easy. It's really difficult. And so, you know, all these different reasons why sexual crimes are underreported. So, a lot of things that have happened never end up before the courts. And then in particular in the United States, you know, I talked about sort of proportionate responses, you know, the states really stands out in terms of having a particularly punitive approach to crime in general, including sexual crime with, you know, various kinds of restrictions that aren't applied to any other kind of crime and that aren't applied in most of the world without investing in rehabilitation where, you know, Again, I'm not arguing against punishment. I think people should face consequences for their behavior that harms other people. But I would like to see that matched by also intervening in a way to make sure that that person doesn't do it again. And you don't really see that concomitant investment a lot of the times. Absolutely. I share your perspective 100%. And yes, again, to reiterate what you said, the criminal justice system is very important here in terms of making sure that people are held accountable, but that only works if crimes are being reported and pursued through the justice system. And with those basic principles of behaviorism that you talked about, it just doesn't work as a primary means of prevention. And as you mentioned, there's also not a lot that's done in the way of actual rehabilitation. So yeah, so many crucial and important points there. But since we're on the subject of legal punishments for sex crimes, let me ask for your take on the sex offender registry, which I think you were alluding to. Many countries, including the United States, have these sex offender registries. And my sense of them is that politicians and legislators think that they work on a couple of levels. One is, I think some of them suspect it's a deterrent to committing sex crimes because 
if you're on the sex offender registry, it's going to forever ruin your life in terms of ability to get job, where you can live, all these other sorts of things. But I think legislators also often see the registries as being preventative, you know, maybe with the thought being that if you're placing so many restrictions on sex offenders, that that will make them less likely to commit future crimes. But the evidence for these things working in that way is really scant. And some research suggests that they might actually be counterproductive and paradoxically might even increase rates of reoffending. So what's your take on sex offender registries? Well, I think you've quite nicely summarized that research. There's not been a ton of research on the impact of sex offender registries, but the research that I've seen doesn't suggest that it has a net benefit, that it's helping to improve public safety or reduce sexual offending. And I suspect that's the case for several reasons. One is that registries typically are crime-based. So it's like if you commit a certain kind of sexual crime, then you're going to be put on the registry for some period of time, sometimes for a lifetime. That fails to take into account that people who commit the exact same crime may actually pose very different levels of risk of sexually reoffending. I realize that's more complicated and more challenging in terms of implementation, but a more risk-based registration might have an impact. You know, something simply because you've committed a certain kind of crime and you get on the registry doesn't make sense to me compared to if you're at a certain level of risk, you know, maybe putting you on a registry, you know, might have an impact in terms of reducing harm. Another one is, you know, and although multiple countries have created these registries, including Canada, the United States stands out as one of the few countries where those registries are public facing. You know, anybody can access the website and look up people in their neighborhood or people, you know, certain names, et cetera. And so that does raise a risk that you don't see in Canada where the registries are only available to law enforcement to assist them in terms of, you know, investigating any allegations or, you know, reports of suspicious behavior or of offenses. That does raise the risk of vigilantism and all the negative impacts that that can have, right? That understandably people don't want to have somebody who's sexually offended living next door. And so they might oppose somebody moving in, harass them, uh, do other kinds of things that, as you said, paradoxically could actually increase the risk of that person sexually acting out. My third sort of objection to registries is that I don't think it was intended to do this, but again, for public facing registries, because they report the addresses, the person that people are really angry about or really scared about is the person who's offended. But if they live with anybody else, everybody who lives in that same residence, you know, can sort of bear the consequences, you know, including family members, including partners, including roommates, you know. And so, again, that adds another level of strain that, that we know more generally that one of the things that can help people in terms of rehabilitation is having positive connections in the community, getting a job having a positive connection with family and friends, you know, having people in your life who you can turn to when you need help. Public facing registries can actually interfere with all that. Like you said, it interferes with your ability to get a job. It interferes your, with your ability to get stable housing. It interferes with your ability to say, live with family or friends. Yeah. Thank you for explaining all of that. And I'm of the same mind as you in that I think there are lots of problems in the way these registries are implemented and that there are better ways to do this. And totally agree with that a risk-based assessment is really important rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. 
Let's talk more about things that work in terms of prevention. So I suppose one starting point for that is to look at treatment for convicted offenders. And my understanding is that some of the most common treatments include things like cognitive behavioral therapy and sometimes chemical castration, where you're administering a drug that lowers levels of testosterone in the body, with the idea being that that's going to reduce sexual motivation. So in general, how well do these kinds of treatments work in terms of reducing reoffending rates? And is there a best approach for treatment? I know that's a really big, <laughs> complicated question. It is a big question. What can you tell us about that? It's a big question, but absolutely a fair question, because, of course, we're all very invested in knowing the answer to, you know, how well do treatments for people who've been convicted of sexual offenses work? There has been a lot of attention paid to this. You know, at this point, there's been multiple, you know, meta-analyses, multiple systematic reviews of those outcome studies. And they are pretty consistent in pointing to the finding that treatment seems to have a positive effect in terms of reducing the likelihood that people who participate in treatment uh, will sexually reoffend. As you mentioned, you know, the kinds of features that seem to be associated with better outcomes include cognitive behavioral perspective, you know, really focusing on those cognitions, those attitudes and beliefs that we've talked about, and the kinds of behaviors that might precede when somebody uh, commits sexual offenses. So, you know, the better the person understands what kinds of thoughts and behaviors put them in those risky situations, engaging in risky behavior, hopefully, the better they are prepared to do things differently so that they don't end up in those same situations. Or if they do end up in those situations, they're better able to cope. I don't know if you want to get into like an example of the kind of, of processes that's maybe a little too in the weeds, but I could talk about you know what that could, might look like for someone. We also know that treatments that address specifically a person's ability to regulate their sexual urges is really important. So, you know, a really common feature of effective treatment programs seems to be paying attention to helping the person recognize that they are possibly going to be experiencing sexual urges, let's say focusing on those who've offended against children or who are looking at child sexual exploitation materials, you know, in the law referred to as child pornography. If they have sexual urges uh, regarding children, there's things they can do to cope with those urges, right? Like the fact that you have an urge doesn't mean you have to act on that urge. But for some people, that's what they've tended to do in the past because they didn't necessarily have the capacity or the skills to intervene. And that's a focus of those treatments is to teach them those skills, you know, include mindfulness techniques. It can include, you know, better ways of coping with negative emotions. It can include, uh, you know, behavioral strategies in terms of things you can do when you experience those urges to go and cope. People go for walks, uh, go talk to a friend, do other things because those urges, they certainly can rise up, but they're not going to persist forever. They will subside given time. Yeah, so it sounds like when it comes to treatment for sex offenders and reducing recidivism rates, it all goes back to your motivation facilitation model. And the goal is either to reduce the sexual motivation or it's to inhibit one or more of the facilitating factors by changing people's cognitions or other things that might be going on there. So, and my understanding too is that multimodal treatment often works the best here where there is some combination of drug therapy with some type of cognitive behavioral therapy. So in that way, you're targeting multiple things at once. Now, while treating convicted offenders can reduce reoffending, and that's important, that doesn't help us when it comes to people who are at risk for committing sexual offenses but have not done so yet. So, for example, the idea here would be 
you would want to try and get people with, say, sexual attraction toward children, but have never acted on that into therapy or treatment proactively to prevent them from committing a sex crime in the future. And one example of that would be the Dunkelfeld Project in Germany, which basically does precisely this. So do these programs work? And is it possible to get people to voluntarily seek treatment before they've committed an offense? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it actually, to me, impacts into several questions, right? So one is, are there approaches for preventing sexual offending in the first place, like the Dunkelfeld Project, where people are at risk, let's say, because of having sexual attraction to children? Can those work? So I'd answer that question by saying there's been a variety of different prevention efforts that have been launched in recent years. There's really been, I think, a real shift in the last, let's say, five to 10 years in terms of interest in, and willingness to invest in prevention. So there's been the emergence of confidential helplines for people who are seeking support or information you can call their self-help websites that you know teach some of the techniques that we've discussed in terms of what we've learned for, for people who've been convicted of sexual offenses. There's both virtual and in-person treatment like Dunkelfeld. We've seen this explosion of interest in prevention. What we are still waiting for is an evaluation results. You know, sexual offending treatment has been around for decades. And so it's literally taken that many years to finally be able to say with some confidence that there's evidence for positive effects. We're, we're not quite there yet with prevention. The second question I heard was, can we reach people? And I say, yes, we can reach people, but it's really challenging. Particularly when I think about pedophilia. It's so stigmatized. I mean, I, I would argue it's maybe one of the most stigmatized things that exist in terms of how much anger and hatred and negative reactions there are to somebody somehow being identified as sexually attracted to children. That, that's really an impediment to people coming forward. You know, this, this is not something you can talk easily about to your family doctor to try and get a referral. This is not something that is easy to confide to your family or closest friends, right? Looking for social support and looking for help. People might be very interested in seeking help, but they'll always be scared, at least a little bit, that somehow this is going to identify them and some people in their family will find out or their people at work will find out or people in their community will find out. So all of that really kind of, I think, gets in the way. And to me, that's one of the challenges that prevention is going to have to address is, is how to reach people in a way that can address that fear and recognize that stigma. Third question that impacts for me is that Dunkelfeld is an example of an intervention, a prevention intervention that addresses at-risk people who, who need to sort of self-identify. At least originally, there's a version for young people now, but originally it was designed only for adults. You know, for me, the, my thinking about prevention is that waiting until somebody's an adult where they may have already committed undetected offenses is obviously still important and a valuable step forward. But I would love to really move prevention to younger in life and in a more universal way. So if it's okay, I'll talk about some of the prevention efforts that I'm aware of that I really feel like, you know, there's a lot of value in them. One that I think, and I know this is, you know, it's controversial, certainly in, in terms of public discourse and, and sort of political discourse, but I, I think it's unambiguous actually in terms of the evidence for this. Comprehensive sex education that talks honestly and genuinely about ideas like consent, like bodily autonomy, like, you know, communication, these, you know, to me, core human skills. First of all, I think it should be available, period, because there's, you know, so many possible benefits in terms of things like 
people getting in, you know, risky situations, sexually transmitted disease, unplanned pregnancy, you know, and also any other situations where, you know, people are being sexually harmed. I genuinely believe that that investing in comprehensive early sex education that addresses these core issues to me counts as prevention of sexual offending. As another example, something that I, you know, I've recently gotten to know more about, you know, there's uh, high school based interventions that have been designed and have been evaluated using randomized clinical trials to address teen dating violence, like programs like safe dates or shifting batteries. Well, they were designed to reduce dating violence, but it turns out they actually had positive spinoffs in terms of reducing sexual violence specifically as well, and sexual harassment. So to me, that's an example of, you know, the kind of program that could be provided in a more universal way as a school-based prevention that would reduce teen dating violence, which is a good thing, and also would specifically reduce sexual criminal behavior as well. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the education piece because I was going to ask you a question about that anyway. I think there is good evidence that having better sex education can really help when it comes to preventing sexual violence. Uh, One study that I'm aware of looked at high school students who had received comprehensive sex ed that really emphasized sexual communication skills and found that they had half the risk of reporting being sexually assaulted when they were in college compared to people who didn't receive that kind of education. And so I think there is this big role for sex ed we need to talk about here as well. So there are tons of reasons, as you said, for why we want comprehensive sex education. So many benefits across the board in terms of reducing teen pregnancies, teen STIs, teen abortions, but also in terms of reducing sexual violence. Now, I want to go back to one of the things we were talking about with people voluntarily seeking treatment before they've committed a sexual offense. Because this is a really challenging thing. There are people who do want to get help, but they're really afraid to go and seek treatment. And one of the things that actually gets in the way of that are these mandatory reporting laws. And I think mandatory reporting laws are very well-intentioned. You know, the idea behind it would be if, say, you're a psychologist and you have a patient who comes in who discloses that they have committed a a sexual contact crime with a child or that they watch child porn, that they would then be reported to authorities, right? And so the goal there was really to ensure that there's a reporting mechanism for people who have committed sexual crimes. But what we've seen is that in the states that have enacted these mandatory reporting laws, the number of people voluntarily seeking help plummets to like zero, right? So it's this well-intentioned thing that actually becomes a barrier because then people get worried about what will be reported. And I think there's often some confusion about which types of things should be reported and and shouldn't. And so it's one of those very challenging things in terms of how do you help people who want to seek treatment, but who are just really afraid of what the consequences would be. I don't know that there's a great answer for that, but it's a tough topic. Yeah, it is a tough topic. I mean, my thoughts on the issue of mandatory reporting, I think very much match what you just described, which is I definitely see why it's important that these laws exist and why these expectations exist. And my hope certainly is that it can be helpful in terms of, you know, earlier response to children who are being abused in some way. Uh, But it can be a challenge, right, to recruiting and retaining people in treatment to reduce the risk, especially in terms of prevention. 
Part of it is confusion, like you said. So a uh, former student of mine, Sky Stevens, has done some research looking at doing surveys, people's understanding of mandatory reporting. And it's really interesting to me because you really do see in among practitioners real variability in opinions about when they are obliged to report and what they're obliged to report. You know, even though the laws can be quite specific about the situations when you can report, and in particular in breaching therapist client privilege, people didn't necessarily understand uh, those nuances. Or, you know, for example, uh, some people thought that if somebody reported that they were sexually attracted to children, that in and of itself was reportable. When it's actually not, I mean, it's really not from my understanding of any mandatory reporting laws. It's about when an identifiable child is at risk of sexual abuse. And the fact that somebody says, you know, I'm attracted to children in and of itself doesn't identify anybody. And it doesn't suggest that that risk of sexual abuse. One thing that I think is necessary in terms of moving forward on prevention is better education about mandatory reporting and a better understanding of, of what those obligations are and when they apply. Something I want to mention in you know, the previous question about you know, what can we do more in terms of prevention, I wanted to, to mention a couple of other things uh, that we didn't cover yet. One is that there's evidence of the value of bystander intervention. So one of the things about sexual offending, you know, in our conversation, focusing on the motivation facilitation model, it's really been a focus on the individual, right? There's the individual who's at risk, maybe because they high in motivation factors, high in facilitation factors. And they're in situations where those crimes that take place. And then, you know, of course, the focus on, on potential victims. One of the things that I think is really valuable in recognizing is that not all the time, but a lot of the time, there's other people around who may see something suspicious or even more than suspicious. They're actually witnessing the offense take place, but they don't necessarily know what or how they can intervene. And so that's, you know, something I've been really interested in is uh, the impact of bystander intervention training, you know, empowering people to actually step in if they can safely, help the victim if they aren't able to step in at the time, and then also help in terms of supporting, you know, reporting and everything else. The other thing I want to mention, I just give a shout out to a colleague of mine, Elizabeth Letourneau at Johns Hopkins uh, University. She recently published with her team an evaluation of a middle school-based program called Responsible Behavior Towards Younger Children which was specifically designed to be an education intervention to prevent sexual abuse of younger children by adolescents, right? So in middle school, just as they're entering into adolescence, they may have younger siblings at home. They may, you know, interact with younger kids from sports or other kinds of activities. And so that study that they published recently showed some evidence from a pilot study that that curriculum seemed to have a positive impact in terms of, of reducing risk, which is really encouraging. Yeah, it is really encouraging to know that there are things we can do, that there are programs that do work. It's my hope that we will implement these things on a wider scale because sexual violence is such a big and pervasive problem. So one other question that I had for you that I think is important to address is coming back to how people in the mental health profession view paraphilias, especially things like pedophilia. And I bring this up because I used to work in a counseling psychology PhD program and I taught courses on human sexuality. And I remember this one day where I assigned actually some of your articles on pedophilia and 
I had a student who came up to me after class and she was just about finished with the program, ready to go off on internship and said that that was the first time in her entire four-year program that she had ever even discussed that subject with anyone. And she said when she went on interviews for her internship that there was a standard question at every interview where they said, is there any group of people that you don't think you'd be able to work with? And she said her stock response was pedophiles. And she said she got this approving nod from everyone who asked that question. And so I bring this story up because it seems like as a field, we're not necessarily doing a lot of training in this area and essentially saying, don't bother, or at least that was kind of the experience that I had in that department. But I think it raises the question of if somebody did want to seek help proactively, would they even be able to get it? So I'm curious for your take on the profession and how it's doing when it comes to training around these issues and what we could be doing better as a field to help prevent sexual violence. Mm -hmm. There's been some recent research that I think touches exactly on, on your question, right? About even if somebody was willing to seek treatment to help themselves, would they actually be able to get it? And so the research I'm thinking of is uh, in particular some studies that have shown that, you know, therapists are human beings as well. There's nothing about the training and the preparation and the experience of doing clinical work that necessarily immunizes people against having stigma and having the same kinds of prejudices or biases as well. So, you know, that research does show pedophilia is very stigmatized, as I said, in the public, but also among professionals. You know, there are a lot of professionals who would categorically say, I would never work with people who have sexually offended against children, or I would never work with somebody who, who has pedophilia. And it's not really kind of challenged or questioned, you know, and I think the way I think of it is, could somebody say the same thing about any other kind of particular group of people? You know, I would never work with group X. People might kind of look, look a little askance at that, right? In terms of fostering a, you know, empathic and compassionate and open-minded kind of milieu. The other study I was thinking of was a survey of people who are sexually attracted to children. It was an anonymous online survey and it was asking them about their therapy experiences. And unfortunately, their answers in that survey really kind of match, you know, what you were just describing, which is a lot of them found their first attempts to seek treatment to be really unhelpful because they actually were rejected. Like they would, you know, introduce the fact that they were concerned because they had these sexual thoughts about children and the therapist would literally sort of terminate service and say, yeah, I can't help you and, and cut them off or was, let's say, not compassionate in terms of how they reacted to that disclosure and in terms of also whether the therapist knew very much about pedophilia and, you know, was able to offer them any kind of specific help or support. So to me, that means we have a lot of work to do within the helping professions as well, right, in terms of exposure to these ideas, uh, education about it, addressing that challenge in terms of stigma and sort of broadening the base because there are a lot of people who need help and there's you know, definitely not enough available for them at this time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this, Michael. It was a really important and I think really fascinating conversation, but there's still so much work to be done in this area. So it was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to get a copy of one of your books? I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on, but I'm still active on Twitter at MCZeto, M-C-S-E-T-O. Uh, I have a LinkedIn profile with the same user handle. Uh, I'm also on ResearchGate for people interested in, in my academic work. 
And in terms of the books I've written, I've written books about pedophilia and sexual offending against children, and then specifically uh, online sexual offending, and they're both available from the American Psychological Association. Well, thank you again for your time, and thank you for all of your important work in the field. Thanks a lot. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Bye.